Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, October 18th, 2022. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, uh, encouraging you to go to commentary.org and read the contents of our November issue right there. Barton Swing's brilliant essay, The War on Work. Jonathan Tobin on Ken Burns' very distorted documentary about the U.S. and the Holocaust. Joshua Carlip on the disaster of American Jewish studies, our own Abe Greenwald on Tom Cotton's new book about uh, American power, our own Christine Rosen on wokeism and billionaires and billionaires' daughters. Uh, so much good stuff. Uh, I, I really strongly encourage you, commentary.org, subscribe, read, enjoy, be enlightened, be entertained, become a better person. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, media commentary columnist and uh, American Enterprise Institute fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So, you know, it's uh, it's October and the leaves are t- uh, turning. And so it's time for a nice, healthy dose of anti-Semitism all over the United States. Um uh, Kanye West, obviously uh, off his meds and out of a lunatic asylum to which he should be permanently uh, assigned, lest he do damage to himself, his children, his family, and American culture, uh, sort of came out uh, a roaring, starting on Tucker Carlson's show with thing with quotes and things that were um, mysteriously cut so that Tucker could focus on uh, not actually doing the news in relation to Kanye West, but like promoting Kanye West's interests. Uh, which was an interesting choice on his part, but in various other fora, including interviews with uh, a rapper podcasters or something like that, uh, Kanye came out and said uh, it was the Jews who promoted stories about his ex-wife and her uh, love life with her uh, girlfriend, with her, with her boyfriend, uh, and uh, the Jews are, are doing things. And he, but on the one hand, he wants his kids to learn about Jews because it'll help them with money and various other things and he's like how could he be anti-semitic he's jesus or he's jewish or they're jews i mean you know he's a very disordered he has obviously a disordered fractured mind and is very 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 sick so um in one sense his anti-semitism is illustrative of the sickness of anti-semitism and the way in which anti-semitism is all often connected to and part of delusional ideas about the world. I mean, I will, you know, not to not to go from the ridiculous to the sublime, but the great American poet Robert Lowell, who was intermittently schizophrenic, one of the ways his friends said that you used to know that Lowell was slipping back into his um, into into a bad way was that he would start ranting about Jews and praising Hitler. So th- this is actually like a thing, a known thing in the world of psychiatry and the study of schizophrenia, a kind of fixation on, obviously, schizophrenia is all, often a v- vision of the world behind the world or an idea that there are, you know, there's motive actors controlling things from behind the scenes that you can't see. That is a the classic paranoid schizophrenic delusion and anti-Semitism is the classic paranoid theory about the secret inner workings of the world so there's a reason that they are connected and then so that's Kanye West and then you have this bizarre spectacle of far-right people excited by the fact that there is a cultural figure as dominant as Kanye West 
um, turning, seeming somehow to come side with them. He's now uh, announced his intention to buy Parler, which was the social media system started in, I, I can't remember, 2016 for people who were either sick of Twitter or got th thrown off Twitter because of, in fact, sometimes their connection to anti-Semitism so that they should have another place where they could conduct free speech. And so apparently Kanye is going to buy Parler. Um, and then, of course, you have Donald Trump uh, coming out out of nowhere, no no connection or relation to anything, nothing, no, nothing in the news that he was playing off of except maybe Kanye, and Abe, what was it that Donald Trump said in his truth, social truth tweet? So here's the Trump quote exactly. No president has done more for Israel than I have. Somewhat surprisingly, however, our wonderful evangelicals are far more appreciative of this than the people of the Jewish faith, especially those living in the U.S. Those living in Israel, though, are a different story. Highest approval rating in the world could easily be PM. U.S. Jews have to get their act together and appreciate what they have in Israel before it is too late. Okay, so we now have to parse. This is an interesting moment because we sort of have to parse what's going on here and the degree and the extent to which what Trump said here is or is not anti-Semitic, by which I mean that it is, you know, anti-Semitism anti is Jew hatred or hostility to Jews as Jews or being Jews. And so hostility toward American Jews as a political class, if you want to treat Jews as a political class, is not prima facie evidence of anti-Semitism. Like, trust me, plenty of American Jews say, talk smack about other American Jews. Uh, 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 secular and reform American Jews talk a lot of smack about Haredi Jews. Conservative Jews talk a lot of smack about liberal Jews and all of that. And of course, Trump here is saying, I'm the best president for Israel. Israelis love me. What's the matter with you, American Jews? You better love me and Israel before it's too late. Um, I don't know if I would classify this as anti-semitism like kanye west talking about how jews are controlling the money and you know and 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 issuing and covering his ex-wife's love life in order to destroy him because he's telling the truth about jews or whatever it is that he that he thinks but um i am open to the floor in discussing how anti-semitic or not anti-semitic trump's statement is let me just put it this way it's disgusting he should be ashamed of himself not, not that he has any capacity for shame uh american jews owe him no fealty um i i am i he did some extraordinary things for israel and i am myself very grateful for that and i it is the best thing about his presidency and one of the reasons that i can't view his presidency as a terrible failure the Abraham Accords, which are not just a favor to Israel, but are have been a potentially transformative thing for the 21st century. Nonetheless, he opens his mouth or he puts his stuff on 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 Twitter, and he just he poisons what's good about it by by casting it in this way. Like, give me credit, you rotten Jews, you. Well, yeah. and he he has done this. I, I just he's done this 
Look, Kanye is uh, clearly his statements are anti-Semitic. He also went formally disgraced Cuomo. It, it also interviewed Kanye last night and Kanye went double down on all of his anti-Semitism, ranting about you know Jewish controlled media, the whole thing in a bizarre interview that seemed to have been taped on a grainy phone, iPhone in the back of a car. But uh, what Trump has done over, when he was president, did it when he was president. Um, and he's done it ever since he's he's left office is whenever he says something that that is tasteless and borderline anti-Semitic or just awful, he'll say, but of course, you know, my son-in-law and daughter, they're they're Jewish, so it's fine. Like he he likes to cite Jared and Ivanka. Ivanka. Um, but in this case, here's the thing. You can say that his particular words in this particular case were not anti-Semitic. The problem is that Trump knows who his supporters are. And among his supporters are some of the nastiest anti-Semites out there. And every time he says something, anything about the Jewish people, he knows that he is speaking to a group that has a deep-seated hatred. So, and, and many of whom actually have talked about acting on that hatred and some of whom have acted on it. So, and, and rising anti-Semitism in this country makes every word he said or posts on Truth Social irresponsible. And if he wants to, con he has a lot of cultural power right now for better, for worse. He needs to be exercising that power more responsibly. He knows what he's doing when he says these things that I don't think he gets an excuse well, for at, it. At face value, this is obviously just an expression of his own clinical narcissism that he views his, his assessment of your value is directly proportional to your relative support for him, um, which is why he thinks he can be the prime minister of Israel for some bizarre reason. I'd love to hear him talk about the coalition politics in Israel just to maybe he can explain it to me. It's a little complicated. Um, <clears throat> but I think you're discomfited, John, and you say you're discomfited, and I am too, by the idea that U.S. Jews have to get their act together. They simply aren't being Jewish enough, <laughs> for lack right. of a better term. Yeah. He, They have failed to measure up to his expectations of what Jews should be, which is in itself an anti-Semitic expression. He's he's done this before, by the way. Uh, a couple of years ago, he said, I think, quote, I think any Jewish people that vote for a Democrat, I think that that it shows either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. Um, and this this was a quote that left everyone saying disloyalty to whom? To the faith, yeah. to Israel, to him. Um, you know, he did. And look, I agree with with essentially everything that's been said here. I don't think it's anti-Semitic in itself. I don't think he is an anti-Semite at all. Um, I think it is nonetheless extremely dangerous because it can be read by uh, a certain contingent of the Trump faithful as those damn disloyal Jews can't right. can't trust them. I mean, and, and again, and, and, and I remember saying this at the time when he said that first quote, um, I think part of this, to be honest, is that he he kind of thinks of himself a bit as a New York Jew. Uh, he grew up around them. He works and worked in New York real estate. He thinks it's he thinks it's something he can say. Well, you know, I wrote a piece way back in 2016 about him and Hillary and how they they both represent two different faces of the 1960s. That she's the face of the person who goes to college and become and gets you know politically pushed to the left and then gives a you know pompous self-righteous valedictory speech at wellesley and all of that and that he was the 60s before that he was the rat pack 60s he was the sinatra 60s and that was very jewish inflected stuff that stuff was when 
when Jews were, in some sense, what African-American rappers are now. For some reason, they were the coolest of the cool. They were, you know, and so the Rat Pack, you know, used Yiddish inflections, Yiddish phraseology. Trump's own speaking style is far more redolent of Yiddish New York City sort of like slangy behavior than it is like a Catholic boy or, you know, uh, he's not a Catholic, but like, a you know, a German, a German Irish boy from Queens. He says, I, you know, it's like, oh, that guy, you know, like that or stuff. His, his talk, his manner is kind of that. So I think there is something but his You're social pointing. media presence, I think, yeah. I think that's right. But Abe is correct that the, what he sounds like now is is that a bit that hilarious episode of Seinfeld where the dentist converts just so he can make anti-Semitic jokes. Yeah. Remember, played by the extraordinary Brian Cranston in a weird little role. You know, yeah, before, before he, became yeah, before Breaking he was Bad. Brian Cranston, he was fantastic. Yeah. He he's such a great actor. Yeah. But that I, when I read the Truth Social stuff or he, what he used to say on Twitter. It it reads to me like someone who thinks he's so in group that he can make you know the kinds of jokes that actually you really can't make unless you're in right. the in group. He's not in the right. in group. <laughs> right. Well, so going to the point here is that when he said loyalty or he refers to loyalty or disloyalty, I think it's pretty clear by now that what Trump means by loyalty is loyalty to him, and so it's very personal. But when you use the word loyalty in relation to Jews, and this is where he may not actually be literate enough to understand the dog whistle the way i don't think he was literate enough to understand the dog whistle of america first for example which was a phrase that was very much used in 2016 and you by the way notice it's gone <clears throat> they don't talk about america first they talk about american greatness or make america great again or whatever the phrase america first has vanished from the trumpian vocabulary because it was redolent of anti-Semitic isolationism in the 1930s as represented foremost by Charles Lindbergh. Similarly, when he talks about loyalty, that raises the phrase or in the minds of people who are very conscious of this, dual loyalty. Jews have a dual loyalty. They're loyal to them. They're lo they, wh Whose side are they on? Are they on Israel's side? Or are they on America's side? This is a key idea, not just in kind of like classic anti-Semitism, but in academic anti-Semitism, in the anti-Semitism of John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt, who wrote the book, The New Israel Lobby, which is that Jews in America have an allegiance to a foreign power or a foreign entity uh, that is sometimes at odds with what America's interests are, or in their eyes, always at odds with what America's interests are. And so if they express support for Israel or policies that will help Israel, what they are showing is their loyalty to a foreign power and not to the United States. And that is pure I want to just correct just, the record oh, a little Abe, bit. Go ahead, Abe, Abe, but, go ahead. What's so interesting about this, though, is that in some sense, what Trump is saying here is a kind of inversion because he's saying... Why aren't you being dual loyalists here? Why don't you care about Israel? You're supposed to care about Israel. Right. I mean, I just want to correct the record yeah. briefly because the idea here that they've dropped the idea of America first out of some expression of, of belated understanding of how uh, offensive it is, is just not true. Three days ago, Donald Trump was saying that Andy Ogalis, this you know backbencher candidate for US House is a tireless fighter for our America first agenda. Um, the Domestic Policy Council under the Trump administration now 
the chief, Brooke Rollins, is the chief director of the Domestic Policy Council uh, under Donald Trump, is now president and CEO of the America First Policy Institute. So they have not okay, fair changed enough. their tune on it. Fair enough. I, I, it was just... even, even despite the fact okay. that we've been saying this for the last six right. years. But I think I think where my point stands is that um, until they developed the MAGA idea, America first was the key phrase. It was the foreign policy phrase that was being used. And then sort of MAGA came out and kind of over overshadowed it. So if you're right, I mean, OK, so uh, record corrected. Um, here's the. Here's the thing about the whole notion of Trump talking about how, you know, Jews better like him in Israel uh, before it's too late. Um, I, what The question is before it's too late for what? That's that's where that's where it's like th this tweet is like kafefe. Like you don't quite understand what it, wh what is he saying? Is he saying before it's too late because people like me are going to turn on Israel the way you've, or is it before it's too late because Iran is going to blow Israel? I don't I'll, look, it, it's all, it's pure interpretation. You know, um, I didn't take it as a threat. Uh, people are, a lot of people are taking this as a threat. I took it as um, appreciate what you have in Israel before it's too late. Um, that, that is how, that is how I took it. Why? Because I, don't at, at the root of this again i don't think trump is a jew hater but I, no, I, don't, I don't even think he's a transactional jew hater to be honest right okay but the point that noah made which is that it's an expression of his narcissism um there's also there's also a political component to this i mean the the startling thing that he did the other day is there is this long shot senate candidacy in colorado joe day is running against the incumbent democrat michael bennett a lot of people think he's a really good candidate. There has been talk for months that if there's a surprise to see uh, if it's a really good Republican night, Colorado might be the surprise. Joe O'Day might be the surprise that he's competent, smart, interesting, a businessman. He's running a very non-ideological campaign in the right way in the state and could pull off an upset. So out of nowhere, Trump comes out and tweets hostily about Joe O'Day um, because Joe Day said something about Trump or his policies being slightly nasty, I think was the phrase, slightly nasty. So he's like this rhino, da 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 da. And um, it's interesting because he is, you know, if if that race, if Michael Bennett ends up winning that race by five thousand votes or two thousand votes, because it gets really really close. Uh, Trump turning on Joe Day in a, in a state in which he is not particularly popular, but where there are a lot of evangelical Christians, which are the part of the subject of the the tweet about um, about Israel, by the way, was praise for evangelical Christians for loving him, for loving Israel. Uh, but there are a lot around Colorado Springs. That's where Focus of the Family was based. And it's a, you know, there's a lot of evangelical. If, if that race is really, really close, Trump will be responsible for O'Day losing the Senate race. I mean, I, I'm, 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 this is speculative because it could not be close. You know, it could be hundreds of thousands of votes separate them. Uh, and maybe there isn't really a chance. But so there you have Trump solely on the grounds of protecting his brand. That is to say, nobody should ever be allowed to say anything negative about him or separate themselves from him publicly or he will come after them. 
and everybody needs to know this at all times for his discipline of the Republican Party for not trying to separate itself from him, uh, get slackened. Um, <clears throat> so there you have Trump doing this with O'Day. And it's narcissism, but it's not entirely narcissism. There is a Machiavellian component to this. If he lets up for just a second, right, uh, then the slack, the slack will come into the line and people will feel free to start separating themselves from him. And then, and then that could be like a boulder. Now I'm going from a line to a boulder rolling down a hill, mixing my metaphors. But um, in that sense, attacking American Jews for not liking him enough uh, could also be seen as a kind of shot across the, I'm not going to let you go on like this. I just don't know what the spur was. Well, the Trump tweet. If, if I could, if I can bring the Kanye nonsense back into this for a minute, this is why I actually think, in a broader way, um, I, I think he, maybe he was seeing all the attention Kanye was getting for being anti-Semitic and thought, yeah, you know, I have some thoughts on Israel and me, and let's talk about me and what the Jews think of me. I mean, it could be that simple because he's fairly simplistic in his thinking. But the reason I, I, I mean, look, the Trump stuff is is bad for the reasons we've said, but but I am also really disturbed by the way a lot of the handling of the Kanye stuff has been talked about because he's he's saying whenever he's pinned down for his anti-Semitism, he'll, he'll say I'm bipolar or I'm like there's an which is not an excuse. It's a, it's a diagnosis. Right. But I don't think we should be that. That shouldn't be the end of the conversation because he's really mainstreaming stuff. All this black, you know, Israelite Hebrew Israelite stuff. That's actually fueled a lot of violent attacks on Jews in this country in the last five to 10 years. I mean, we've had shootings and what, Muncie, stabbings. I mean, there've been all of these terrible anti-Semitic attacks, much of which people have gone into these chat rooms and, and read all this nonsense and believed it and actually acted upon it. So the fact that someone with his profile is mainstreaming this discussion and then saying, oh, well, I'm mentally ill and that's that's my excuse, but I'll keep saying it. I mean, he keeps doing this. This is definitely not the first time. I think we need to, and then of course, as Eli pointed on the podcast yesterday, you have the the sickening sight of a lot of left-wing anti-Semites like Elon Omar then poo-pooing all these things that Trump is saying and and you know wagging their fingers, which is which is you know the the worst sort of hypocrisy. But the mainstreaming of anti-Semitism in this in this country, both culturally and politically, is a serious problem. The attacks on Jews in cities like New York and elsewhere is a serious problem. And it's one for some reason that we are not talking about honestly, for because there are a lot of sort of you know, uh, hot button woke issues that, that that will press. But we need to be having that conversation, honestly, even if it involves figures like Kanye. I think the, the Kanye thing is, you know, as maddening as it is to have to discuss it at all, um, is very disturbing for an additional reason, um, which is that this new right has embraced Kanye um, very mistakenly. I mean, He's not a conservative in any way, shape, or form. He's an identitarian maniac. Uh, you, you, you could say he's a man of faith, but nothing about the way he conducts his life, leads his life, not the, the, the quote, art that he makes um, uh, uh, attests to anything traditionally uh, having to do with family values. Um, uh, and um, so he now has i think as 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 i think we've noted before um populism the end game of populism is is quite frequently anti-semitism um because when you have a, a, an ideology that says uh we the masses are getting screwed over by the by this gr group of elites 
um, the elites, whether they be Wall Street, media, government bankers, the warmongers, whomever, um, it, it, it often ends up um, being, being the boogeyman that is uh, the Jews. And uh, it took Kanye um, to sort of, I think, uh, break down this, this barrier between uh, right wing populism and just straight up anti-Semitism, sort of open the floodgates and get us uh, to this home stretch. And he is not being denounced among these people on the right in the way that that they should. And this is now announced he's getting supported. And then but then they say, well, I mean, but but I mean, there was there was this onrush of support. You know, Candace Owens and uh, and uh, that this uh, attorney general of Ohio, I think, Rakita or Colt, I can't remember his name. I mean, then they were like that was before he said the anti-Semitic stuff. But it's all it's all of a piece. I think the interesting thing, if you want to divide up right wing and left wing anti-Semitism at this moment, is that these are two complementary. And this is very um, uh, alarming if you think about it. That. The mass events, right? The shootings, the shootings at synagogues, uh, the one in Texas. Of course, we're 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 close to the anniversary now, the fourth or fifth anniversary of the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh, uh, Poway, uh, California. Um, uh, these mass events at at religious institutions seem to be the work of people who are uh, bubbling up out of the chat rooms and stuff on the far right. The day-to-day physical threat to particularly visible Jews, Haredim in particular, in Brooklyn, in Muncie, elsewhere, the punchings in the back of the head, the beatings, the things like that, um, those all seem to emerge. Those are not emerging from that. Now, they're not. it's not like they're emerging from political actors. These seem to be hooligans beating up Jews for being Jews. But what music do those hooligans listen to? What is it? What do they listen to? They listen to, they listen to Kanye-inflected rap. Um, now Kanye doesn't have, you know, I, I don't. We don't know what they're hearing. We don't know quite what is, what what has let them loose to do this. But they are certainly not. They are certainly not influenced by the right, and they are certainly not being properly condemned by the left. Well, we uh, should just say also. Here. Hip hop is littered with anti-Semitism. Uh, it's it's it, people are talking about it now because it's Kanye and Kanye is associated with the right. Ice but I mean, Cube is a horrible anti-Semite. Like this has been going on a long time in that genre. Ice Cube, yes. uh, S- Snoop Dogg, you know, comes out in favor of 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 Louis Farrakhan on on online when when you know he's whenever there's a problem with him, and he's embraced by you know the likes of Martha Stewart. He's become like a cuddly cultural uh, uh, icon now. You know. Um, so yeah, it's but so you have, as I say, this is an entirely complementary effect. You have now Kanye is the bridge, which I think is what Abe is saying. I mean, he's going from parlor to the hooligans in Brooklyn. Like he 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 covers the waterfront. He's a mass appeal kind of figure, despite his you know obvious bipolarity. And as I say, I think it's fair to say, given the, the way he's been talking over the last couple of days, to diagnose him at a distance with paranoid schizophrenia. So. I mean, I feel, you know, even though I'm disgusted by him in every possible way, I actually, I find these moments very distressing because he's a, he's, look, he's a billionaire, so he can be nice and sick as a billionaire in his own, you know, billionaire 
can be taken care of in a beautiful way. But, um, but you know, you just hate to see a mind in this kind of condition. It's like, you know, it's not something you, when you see it, when you see someone screaming and ranting and raving on a street, you feel, if you, if you don't feel menaced, you feel really sad, right? It's really sad to see somebody, you know, having a paranoid, schizophrenic, delusional moment, you know, walking up and down Broadway, screaming at the top of their lungs. Once, once you're, once you get over your fear, let's say. And so it's sad. Um, Trump, of course, is a different story because there's nothing sad about what he's doing. He's he just is, you know, constantly pissing into the punch bowl, the American punch bowl um, for no for no particularly good reason. Uh, None of this helps Trump. There's nothing that there's nothing that's helpful to Trump about getting himself into into a broigus with American Jews. Um, It's just. You know, except that, you know, he needs to provide entertainment constantly, right? Or, you know, be, you know, that's where I think that he's watching Kanye and saying, oh, I have some stuff. To, it's like, oh, look at the headlines he's getting. I need to get them too. Um, with that, let me uh, let me move off this topic to talk about a much more serious topic and a really illuminating conversation about that topic. And that is uh, the war in Ukraine. Our friend Dan Senor's podcast, Call Me Back, has uh, its episode this week, one of the best he's ever done with Fred Kagan, who is the president of the Institute for the Study of War, a colleague of Christine's at the American Enterprise Institute, and um, and uh, somebody, uh, PhD in Russian history, taught at uh, West Point for many years. And Fred um, has provided the world with this daily update on, on, on the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, that has charted really from the very outset the surprising quality uh, of the Ukrainian army, the surprising victories of the Ukrainians over the Russians, and the surprising incompetence to, uh, you know, uh, uh, of Russia and onward. And this uh, geopolitical conversation with Dan on the Call Me Back podcast um, is about how Fred does not see uh, any off ramps for Vladimir Putin. Uh, as he looks in every way possible, people say, how can we, you know, dial this down? How can we f- find him an off-ramp so that he can get out of this without, you know, taking it too far? And Fred says, based on his deep study of Russian history, he has a PhD in Russian history based on his deep study of war and all of that, Putin has no off-ramps, which I think effectively means that there is no way out but forward, that that uh, that uh, given this, um, the Russians have to be defeated uh, because Putin will not, you know, will not relent. And uh, what what that means about Noah's favorite topic, which is, of course, the possible uh, use of a nuclear uh, device, uh, is dealt with very extensively in this really brilliant podcast. Dan Senor's Call Me Back. Go to Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcast. And you know what you could be doing while you're listening. You could be going to fastgrowingtrees.com and getting yourself some new trees for the fall. Uh, you know, this is the way you get yourself some beautiful uh, stuff for your for your uh, lawn, for your backyard, for whatever, um, without having to go to those big box stores, throw disgusting, you know, dirty stuff in your trunk or in the back of your car, make it all dirty. They will deliver stuff in one to two days. You order online. 
Uh, they curate thousands of plants so you can find the perfect fit for your yeah, your specific climate, location, and needs. Look, are you looking to add privacy? You want some shade? You want natural beauty? Fast-growing trees has in-house experts ready to help you make the right decisions with growing and care advice available 24-7. Even if you've never had a green thumb, they'll make you feel like you do just like over 1 million happy fast-growing trees. Customers across the country, our Noah Rothman is one of them since neither Abe nor I uh, have, uh, we live in apartments and I don't think Christine has a yard. We rely on Noah to tell us how great fastgrowingtrees.com is. And with their 30 day alive and thrive guarantee, you can trust everything will be healthy for years to come. So go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary and you'll get 15% off your entire order now through October 31st. Get 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary, fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Uh, I know you guys talked about this yesterday, uh, but we need to talk a little about it today. Uh, it's not just the polling data that you cited yesterday, the move in the generic ballot toward Republicans in the New York Times poll that suggests that there is a uh, momentum shift and an atmospheric shift and all of that in the midterm elections, which the final voting, because I guess early voting is now everywhere, final voting takes place three weeks from today is election day. Um, it is in piece after piece and Politico elsewhere. Democratic operatives are saying, uh-oh, I don't feel good. This is not feeling good. I don't feel good. Um, that stuff has more meaning to me. Not that you can trust operatives, uh, but I think you can trust operatives when they when when the when the um when the spin drops and they are somehow, uh, you know, doing a, a cry from the heart, a cree de cur. It's like, uh, you know, you know, I've been in a lot of races. I remember a friend of mine who was a consultant saying in 2018, saying, the data aren't that bad. I just, I don't feel good about what's going to happen here in the midterms. I just, meaning for his own candidates, meaning for people that he was working for, like even, you know, what they had didn't suggest that there was a lot of trouble, but, um, and yet, you know, the whole thing is if you go race by race, particularly in the Senate, you know, it's not like anything is changing much. Uh, in average, Fetterman is still ahead of Oz and Pennsylvania, uh, races in Ohio and in Wisconsin. Uh, these are all the these are the three states that Republicans have to defend in order just to stay at par 50 50. Uh, they're tight as a tick. Maybe one point, half a point separating the two candidates in the poll averages. So it's not like things have broken open, you know, not like somehow suddenly Fetterman has dropped, the, the bottom has dropped out, and Oz is now three points ahead when Fetterman was 10 points ahead a month ago. So I'm not quite sure what it is that's going on, except that there are these races that seem closer than they should be. Like Andrew Cuomo won his last race for governor, I think, by 25, 27 points. Lee Zeldin, who was running against Kathy Hochul, admittedly not, you know, a famous gubernatorial candidate or something, but is is like the ultimate generic Democrat, Kathy Hochul. Like nobody knows who she is. She's just the D, right? She's been governor for a year, but she's just the D. She is barely over 50%. And Zeldin is 
nine or 10 points back. Now I'm not, don't think that Zeldin, I, I think it's unlikely that Zeldin can win. Um, but you know, if he comes within seven points or something like that, when Andrew Cuomo won by 25, that is a sign of a very big thing going on in the kind. In other words, these races that come very close that should be blow blowouts. Is that that's my that's my attitude. That's where I see these signs of stuff. Like uh, somebody else, I think Tom Bevan pointed out that that Richard Blumenthal, who is running for re-election as senator in Connecticut, that's a nine or ten point race. That should be a thirty point race. Does anybody else have this? No, what's your what do you think of my theory here? I it's a fair theory. I can't say that I've spent a whole lot of time looking at the Northeast statewide, um, just because that's kind of a lost cause. But yeah, I mean, if you're seeing smaller margins than blowout margins, I mean what we're talking about 2018 too, right? So this is a dramatically different environment. Um, but yeah, that's if the environment favors Republicans to the tune of I don't know. Ten points is that what we're saying? Approximately, if uh, if Andrew Cuomo managed to uh, pull out a twenty point victory in twenty eighteen in a good Democratic year, um, so yeah, I'm not sure whether that's analysis that we can hang our hats on and say, well, this you got to give Republicans what X amount of points or something in certain contested races. I don't know, um, but even if you don't, you know, just looking at the landscape as it is based on these polls and. Some are better than others, what have you, caveats, you know, abound. Um, but it still looks like Republicans are favored to take the House to the tune of 230 some odd seats and a very competitive Senate election, which increasingly favors Republicans, I believe. Um, one seat majority, two seat majority is not only hard, not hard to envision, but is increasingly likely. I was talking about the uh, Herschel Walker debate yesterday. And you see, it's this has become something in the press. This is a press narrative now. And you see Democrats and, and uh, left-wing commentators like some of my colleagues over at MSNBC really frustrated by the coverage of the debate because they're giving Herschel Walker a lot of credit. He didn't spontaneously combust on stage, which I assume is what they were expecting. And because expectations were so low and he clearly met them, even exceeded them, likely they certainly exceeded mine, um, you know, the environment is probably going to carry Walker over the threshold. His the top of the ticket, Brian Kemp, is running anywhere from seven to ten points ahead. He's usually polling in the 50s. Herschel Walker is not so far outside the accepted mainstream that he can't win. I I think it's more likely than not that he does. And if Republicans manage to keep Pennsylvania, they flip Georgia, they got Nevada and New Hampshire both of which are very competitive. Nevada's leaning Republican right now. That's a 51 seat majority. There, Amy Walter at the Cook Political Report had a great uh, sort of description of some of the Democratic voters who a lot of these candidates statewide need and aren't uh, sure about. Uh, the meh voters, she called them like M-E-H, meh. Like these are people who actually don't really approve of Biden all that much. They kind of probably voted for him because he wasn't Trump. They're not the hardcore post-Dobbs, we must get to the polls because of abortion voters. They're just like meh. And there, a lot of the Democratic candidates are out polling at, at the state level are definitely out polling Biden's approval ratings, certainly, which is not hard to do at this point. But they will need some enough of those meh voters to turn out and actually vote in order to take those elections. So I think Noah's right. Like some of the 
some of the even the kind of bad candidates that Republicans have put up might eke over the over the finish line there because the meh voters just aren't aren't galvanized. I okay, mean, they're so not energized. What pollsters are trying to do now is model the electorate, which is a guessing game. Um, and you should take everything that they pump out with a likely voter screen with a grain of salt. Uh, nevertheless, there's this great piece in Politico today about how Democrats are complaining that they peaked too early. John, I think, referenced some of this uh, last week because they quoted Democratic strategists who are saying, oh, I wish we had the election in August, uh, which is a really bad sign. Um, but one of the caveats that they throw out there to try to keep Democratic hopes alive is, well, maybe pollsters aren't capturing the, the profound surge of uh, new Democratic registrants over the course of the summer. We have a, a big surge of Democratic registration after Dobbs. And pollsters maybe just aren't capturing that because they're screened out of a likely voter screen. They haven't voted before. Um, maybe. But that's that seems like whistling past the graveyard to me. The right. idea here that we can yeah. an electorate that doesn't exist and, and can't be modeled will somehow materialize and save Democrats from a fortune that they that has been barreling towards them at a pretty consistent pace, with the exception of the summer, one month in the summer since early 2021. I assume if if anything, pollsters are failing to capture uh, Republican enthusiasm, as always, <laughs> um, that e even including the latest poll numbers. I think we I think well, we could still add, add a few points uh, right in, in, to, to the red column. Well, I'll just give you a, I'll just give you an example of where, you know, what Noah says, Walker might, you know, eke it out over the over the finish line and win in Georgia. So there was a poll yesterday, Insider Advantage did a poll in Georgia. And it has Warnock up by two, 46-44. So add that up, 46-44, right? That's 10% undecided. In the governor's race, so remember, these are exactly the same people being polled in this one poll. Ask question seriatim. Do you want Warnock, the Democrat, or Walker, the Republican? Or do you want Kemp, the Republican incumbent, or Abrams, the Democratic challenger? Kemp is up 50-43, okay? That's 93. So there's 7% undecided in that race and 10% undecided in the Warnock-Walker race. So there are people who are saying they're going to vote for Kemp who are not saying that they will vote for Walker. And... The question is, when it comes down to it, are they going to go into the polling booth and deliberately not vote for Walker for good reason? I mean, Walker, there's there would be very good reasons not to vote for Walker. Or does this suggest when push comes to shove, they're going to pull the lever for Walker? So that 2% margin for Warnock with 10% undecided, you got to push more people into the Republican camp out of that 10% undecided than you then then you push into the Republican camp. It just it just it 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 follows national atmosphere, issue sets, all of that would redound to the Republican benefit. That's not going to be captured in a poll because the poll, an honest poll says people say they don't know who they're going to vote for for Senate yet. But in all classic rules of politics, unless they're suspended, say the uh, you know uh, a uh, 
voter uh, in the last couple of weeks will who is not decided will tend to break for the challenger, particularly in an atmosphere that favors the challenger's party. By large margins in previous elections, somewhere from three and five to three, you know to three and four, uh, break break for the challenger, and so that's true in a lot of these races, where you have a large undecided number that you sort of guess will come home or will just sort of like sigh and pull the lever for somebody they really like that much, like Walker, whom they have misgivings about. And that could be true in New Hampshire, conceivably, uh, which is not being well polled. Uh, it could be true in Wisconsin. I mean, not I'm sorry, in uh, you know, in Nevada. And it could be true in these states in Washington and Colorado, where in theory the Democratic incumbent isn't isn't really in jeopardy. Um which is well, we've why been talking Trump's, about the decline of yeah. ticket splitting for a decade now, and all of a sudden ticket right. splitting is going to save them <laughs> is is ludicrous. Right. And it works both ways. If the top of the ticket is helping Walker, it's going to be a problem for people like Mehmet Oz, for people like Joe O'Day, where the gubernatorial candidate is entirely unsatisfactory and deserves to lose. Right. So it, it, look, it's a very interesting election, but we are still so cautious that even though you see Democrats saying, we think it's going to be a bad night, right? But what Noah describes, for example, which is the Republican pickup of you know, 15, 16 seats in the House and maybe one in the Senate, would would actually in the end not be such a terrible night for Democrats, and they are talking like it's going to be a lot worse. So I'm going to kind of take their word for it, is what I'm saying. I don't think that people would be saying this even on background if what they were feeling and seeing weren't worse, you know, behind the curtain than what what than what we're seeing. I I I don't know what that means. I don't know what races I'm talking about that will break with the Republicans' way. And I'm not sure they do either. But this is just not the chatter that you expect uh you know from from the party. And then there is the key detail from the Siena poll, the New York Times Siena poll yesterday, which is when you ask people the open-ended question about what it is that they care about the most. Six percent said abortion. Okay, we're hearing that Dobbs is going to save the Democratic Party from a reckoning in November. But if you ask, and remember these voters, they called twenty or thirty thousand people just to get these seven hundred and fifty voters uh, because of the response rates. So they're, you know, they're they're answering the question. You know, they. They must want to talk to pollsters and be somewhat politically engaged to want to talk to pollsters. And they volunteer abortion in six out of 100 cases as the top issue. How is that going to save them? And in the breakdown, it's mostly young people uh, who are notoriously unreliable voters, especially in midterm right. years. Um, and just listen to how Democrats are talking about abortion. We're well past the point at which we could have an up or down referendum on Roe. Nobody likes Roe, turns out. Both both sides of this political dynamic hate the status quo of Roe and want something far more extreme. So 
you know, Democrats are saying, oh, Republicans are very extreme. At the same time, we don't support a single restriction at any point in the pregnancy, even up to the point of viability. Who are they talking to? They're talking to Democrats. And why are they talking to Democrats? Because they don't think Democrats are very engaged. Well, and th th there's a th th another example of that would be the Kemp Abrams debate last night where uh, Stacey Abrams is, is shifted. She just wants to talk about guns now, right? Like her, her discussion of abortion landed her in a lot of hot water about, you know, whether... Uh, uh, a, uh, an unborn child has a heartbeat and which can be heard. But so she was pushing this, like you know, she's trying to make him seem, you know, extreme on guns, but he had a very reasonable response. He said, you know, who's buying most of the guns in our state right now, African-American women, because they don't feel safe in their own neighborhoods because the criminals have guns and they have no way to defend themselves. And, you know, the gun, the people who want a stricter gun laws were horrified by this, but actually Voters in Georgia listening to that probably nodded and said, yeah, no, I mean, you know, crime rates are up. We don't feel safe. We want a way to protect ourselves. Yeah. More restrictive gun laws is not going to solve the problem that is getting people to buy guns in the first place. So I think on a lot of these issues that from a national perspective, Democratic strategists think are wins for Democrats aren't really playing out that way at the state level in a lot of these places. So interesting. It's like it's 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 a really interesting election. <clears throat> Maybe all of these elections are really interesting. 2018 was interesting, of course, because at this moment, uh, Trump had see Trump and the Republicans were seizing on the caravans to be the thing that was going to save them from the 2018 reckoning. You remember they're coming, the caravans, the caravans are coming, the caravans are, you know, are, are our secret weapon didn't work. And so this time abortion is going to save them. Didn't work. So well, by the way, it will work. I'm sorry. Yeah. This time the president Biden is saying, don't pay attention to the border. Don't pay attention to the border. And people are. It's the opposite. Yeah. Although, again, again, when you ask people in an open ended way in the time Siena poll, immigration came up pretty much where abortion was. So did crime. The only issue yeah. that's even remotely resonant outside of the economy and inflation is democracy, uh, the threat to democracy, which which pulls right. in, you know, single digits among people who volunteer it as the most important issue in the country. Yeah. And it's mostly Democrats. But The Times has this write up just lamenting the, you know, the uh, impassiveness of American voters. Yeah. Why aren't you scared? Threat, right. Profound yeah. threat to democracy. democracy. They just, yeah. it's just 71% of all voters said democracy was at risk, but just 7% identified that as the most important problem facing the country. You fools. You <laughs> no, but they have been hammering this message for so long. It's almost as if voters said, yeah, we hear you, but here's what we're really worried about. <laughs> and yeah. they that's unacceptable yeah. to the New York Times. Well, Abe, you said this yesterday on the very excellent podcast that I was not on, thus leading me to believe that maybe I should be on on less and you guys should do it more without me, um, where you said you can't tell people not to care about what they care about. Yeah. And you and, can try, and, you know, it's the music versa. man con, right? The music man con is what do people care about in this town? What's going on in this town, says the music man. Uh, I don't know, um, you know, nothing. This town is dead, but they just put a pool table in the, you know, in the in the in the emporium uh, downtown. A uh, billiard, you know, pool table. Ah, that I can work with, right? Pool, you know. Next thing, you know, your kid is uh, playing for money in a pinchback suit. You know, listening to some big out of town jazz. We're talking about horse horse race gambling. You know, so. 
that's the thing. It's like, don't pay attention to this, pay attention to that, or there's nothing to pay attention to. So I will give you an issue to pay attention to. It's the pool table at the Emporium or it's, you know. Well, but they they tried to sort of um, I mean, yeah, you can't tell people what to care about. You could read what they care about, you know, read people and say, I will I'm I'm here to, to I'm I'm I will answer your needs in that regard. I mean, Biden has tried to do that. And he's like, OK, what do they care? Well, they care about uh, student loans, um, you know, or uh, or um, or uh, pot criminality or, you know, um, the student loan thing is great because this is yeah. a perfect encapsulation of what's wrong with the Democratic Party right now. So that with much fanfare, they announced that you can now go online and apply for your debt forgiveness, debt transfer, whatever. But of course, it's all going to be held up while the legal challenges to this clearly unconstitutional mandate um, are work their way through the court. So it's this weird bait and switch where it's like, look what we're doing for you. Of course, it's not actually happening because we'll probably just like all of the other things that the administration has promised young voters that that don't actually pan out. OK, I want to I want to point out another thing of making people care about something that they clearly don't care about. The New York Times yesterday and The Washington Post today have big features on how there could be a huge surge in covid coming. It's coming, could be coming. <clears throat> Winter variants could be coming. Huge covid surge. What to do at Thanksgiving? Mask up, wear a mask on a plane. You know, avoid your Uncle Louie, who's who's 82. Don't kiss him. Don't hug him. Make him sit in another room. You sit in the other room. I don't know what else. Um, that was a big tweet from the New York Times. It was a list of five things you could do to avoid, you know, having a horrible, you know, COVID experience over Thanksgiving. Gavin Newsom announced that California will suspend its emergency declaration of powers over COVID on February 28th, 2023, that is 133 days from now, he is he is announcing an end to COVID restrictions in 133 days. Why? Because he wants the powers till then. I don't know what what he needs. Um, and uh, no one is getting the Omicron booster. 5% of the country has gotten, or 4.5% of the country has gotten the Omicron booster. It's been out now for like three weeks or something like that. You cannot, I don't care what these people are doing, maybe they're going to stimulate, you know, the people who are, you know, I see on the M5 bus in New, York, in New York City, I get on that bus, it's near my house, and I take it, and there are like 12 people on the bus, and 10 of them are wearing masks. I don't know why they're, I don't know who they are, that seems to be the place in America where everybody's wearing masks is the M5 New York City bus. Um, but I mean, maybe they're just trying to push those buttons or they are the people who are wearing masks and they're also writing the news stories. But you cannot make Americans care about COVID again. It is not going to work. Am I, am I, am I, I mean, I think that is self-evident from the, from the Omicron booster number. Americans are done with COVID. If you get sick from COVID, they're sorry. If you die from COVID, they'll be sorry unless, you know, or they don't care anymore. Enough if people, there's a, you know, yeah. If there's a genuinely more deadly variant, Americans will care. But that's not because anyone made them care. Right. Oh, but Democrats will COVID care. COVID will have made them care. Not right. the, not the No, public. the emotional blackmail will have made them care. It's not about COVID. It's about 
solidarity with African-Americans who experience. No, but that's COVID now. Right. But that's exactly what they're going to get. Solidarity okay. with uh, with racial minorities, with the underclasses, with everybody who's more affected than this by that. The, then the people who themselves are talking about this on media platforms and are consumed with guilt at their own station in life. That's who's going to care about it. And that's the Democratic audience for this sort of thing. Right. But I'm saying Democrats don't care. They, again, open-ended claim about what they're most worried about. Precisely. But they care about progressives, which is why they're talking about how we need to have no restrictions on abortion, because they're not talking to the middle of the American electorate. They're very sensitive to progressive concerns, and progressives are very concerned about COVID. Um, I'm not even sure that anybody said in the open-ended questions in the New York Times-Siena College poll that COVID was a was one of the leading issues. I want to find it. I think it was less than a percent. Yeah, it was very low. It was on. I mean, that's okay. If it's less than a percent, then that's like a percent out of seven hundred and thirty coronavirus people is seven people. Coronavirus oh, yeah, barely is registers. Where? It's less than a half a percent, uh, okay. and it's one percent so, among everybody. And you know, right? old people so you know what that means they ask 732 people whether this is a top concern the top concern of theirs and three of them three of them said they didn't ask volunteered three people out of 732 volunteered that covid was the most important issue to them and that's of the 0.4 percent who picked up the phone yes exactly Unbelievable. All right. We'll be back tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.